Amen, friends. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, 6. If you've been around, you know where we're going to be. Isaiah 9, 6. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue one underneath you're sitting in. And Isaiah 9, 6 is on page 600 and something. You'll you'll find it. 600 and something in the blue Bible. I forget every single time. Um, Isaiah 9, 6 is where we have been for the past few weeks. And it's where we're going to be for the next couple weeks. All the way through Christmas Eve. And here at Flourishing Grace, we believe that this is the Word of God. And so in honor and reverence, if you are able, would you stand with me as I read it for us this morning? Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can grab a seat. So we have been looking at just those, that list of names in Isaiah 6. Or, sorry, in Isaiah 9, 6. We've been looking at that list of names, right? Wonderful, Counselor, everlasting, or Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so we've looked at the first two. We've looked at Wonderful. we looked at Counselor. And this morning we are looking at Mighty God. Mighty God. El, El Gabor is, is the Hebrew word there for Mighty God, the God of great mights, right? El um, is kind of the shortened form of a kind of singular deity, El. Right? It's where we get the word Elohim, right? Uh, which is the Hebraic word for, for deity, right? Uh, so often we, we are told um, that Elohim is the name for God. It's not the name for God. It's just, it's just a Hebraic word for, for deity. Yahweh is the Hebraic name for God. Um, Elohim is this plural form of, of deity. Um, but El is, is God, deity, singular. And this God of might, Gabor, this mighty warrior. So often when we look in the Hebrew at this word Gabor, we're, we're seeing a picture of, of great warriors, right? David's mighty men, his men of Gabor. Um, also, David and Goliath. Goliath was this mighty Gabor, this mighty warrior. Um, this, this picture of, of someone who is going to come in and dominate the battle. This unbelievably strong, mighty warrior. That's the picture that, that God is trying to paint for us in Isaiah 9-6. This God of great might, great strength. But what happens to us, right, when we approach Christmas, this is not how we often think of baby Jesus, Right? A little nine-pound nugget in the manger is not what we picture as mighty God. And so what happens in the West in particular is when we view Christ, we view him kind of as this sweet little baby Jesus who grows up to be this kind of flip-flop-wearing preacher who just talks about love all the time. He's like this soft, fluffy cloud of goodness, and we want to draw near to him. And, and that's, that's how we view God. That's who, he, that's who he is. That's who Jesus is. And if that's all he is, we get half of the picture. If you have the manger, but no might, you cannot understand the gospel. 
We need both. It is good and right to approach Christmas as seeing God as becoming a human being, putting on flesh and dwelling among us. That's good and it's right. That is the point of Christmas. But if that's all you see, you cannot see the gospel. We must be a people who see the might within the manger. And that's the goal for today. That's the goal for today. It's hard for us. As J.I. Packer, the great theologian, put it, he said this. He said, the Christian's instincts of trust and worship are stimulated very powerfully by the knowledge of the greatness of God. The more we understand and grasp God's greatness, the more we grow in our trust and our worship of him. Yet, this is a knowledge which Christians, that's you and I, today largely lack. And that is one reason why our faith is so feeble and our worship so flabby. We are a modern people, and modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, as a rule, have as a rule, small thoughts of God. When a person in the church, let alone a person in the street, uses the word God, the thought is rarely of divine majesty. We have a very hard time grasping divine majesty. We are, we are not a people who get this very easily. Even when you think of God and even your, your greatest thoughts of God are fall very short of true divine majesty. Either, as I said, you look at Jesus as this man who kind of walked around in the desert teaching good things about love, or you maybe see God as kind of this, this old man in the clouds who's kind of ruling over things, but neither one are really divine majesty. Both fall far short. As humans, we have a very hard time with this. Over the past decade, right, uh, Marvel Comics has made a massive comeback, right? Um, they have made billions and billions of dollars. M Marvel is taking over uh, the cinema. And, and they've figured out a way to kind of captivate us with these, with these characters who are less than. You see, all of them. I don't know who your favorite Marvel character is, whether it's Thor or the Hulk or Iron Man or Captain America or in our house, our house for sure, Spider-Man, right? My little boy Haddon loves to put on his little Spider-Man costume and run around the house and tackle his dad. Like everything becomes far more violent when the Spider-Man costume comes on. It's, he, I mean, he's violent as it is, all right? You put on the Spider-Man costume and it just, everything goes crazy, okay? Um, he loves Spider-Man, loves Spider-Man. But you know what they all have in common? Every single one of those characters? None of them are perfect. They all have their flaws. Even, even Superman, who I know is not a Marvel character. I know, listen, you comic book nerds, don't email me, okay? Listen, Superman, who is impenetrable, right? You can shoot him with a gun and the bolts bounce off. He doesn't even bleed. Still has kryptonite. We cannot wrap our minds around perfect might, omnipotence. Omnipotence is a word that was created to define the thing that we cannot define, that we cannot describe. Omnipotence, omni, infinite, infinite potence, power infinite power, right? Uh, last night we were listening to Handel's Messiah. That guy, Handel, he got it figured out, right? The Lord our God, omnipotent 
reigneth. He, he understands there's no way to define, there's no way to describe other than to say infinite power. The Lord our God reigns in infinite power. That's who he is. We cannot wrap our mind around this. It's, too, it's beyond us. It's beyond us. And so friends, I, I want to challenge you this morning. As I am talking, listen to me. You're going to have to do some extra work. You can't just sit there and receive this word. If you want to grasp the mighty God, this will not come natural to you. If you try to, if you try to put this in, in, in terms that you can understand, you will fail. It will not work for you. We must do some extra work this morning. Job 26, one of my favorite passages on the power of God, reads this way, and starting in verse 7. It'll be here on the screen for you. He, God, stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. It just floats there. This massive, unbelievably gigantic ball is floating. It doesn't make any sense. He binds up the waters in thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea, and by his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand it? Here's what Job is saying. In all the things that we know of the created order, of all the things we know of the known universe, in this little planet that we live on, all of these great things, these massive things, right? Job says, clouds, clouds are crazy, right? God gathers up the water in his clouds, and yet somehow they don't break underneath the weight of them. Anybody know how, how, how much water is stored in kind of like just your average everyday cloud? Anybody know? About 500 tons of water in a single cloud. This is like a normal cloud. Massive storm clouds can hold millions of tons of water. Millions of tons. And it's floating in the sky. Job's like, how? Like, I don't grasp it. I can't wrap my mind around it. You know, a week ago, Sunday, the sun exploded. There was a solar flare. Do you, do you see this in the news? It's like a storm on the sun. And there's a massive, if you've seen the picture, you've got to Google this. There's pictures of this explosion. And the explosion is bigger than Earth. Like, it just, what? And it's heading straight for us. And it hit us. Last Thursday, and most of you didn't even know. You're like, what? what? Yes, because we have this atmosphere that you can't even see that is protecting us from massive solar radiation. This is insane. All of it is insane. What Job is saying is that you take all of it, everything that is known by any human ever, everything that's been written in every work that has ever been written on the created order, all of it, all of it, is but a whisper of his power. Just a whisper. It is nothing for him. 
He has infinite power left, infinite might left. Our God could create a new universe every second of every single day, and he would never grow weary or tired. He has infinite power. There's no end to it. Last week, we talked about this idea of counselor, like Jesus being the perfect counselor. I said he's 100% for us. He's 100% right. There's never been a moment where he's been strained to think. He doesn't know what that means. He doesn't know what it means to think because he always knows he's 100% right all of the time. Not because he sat down and had to think about it because he just knows what's right. He only knows what's right. He knows what's 100% right and 100% good, which is why he's a wonderful counselor. But in the same time, he's 100% powerful. He has infinite power. There's never been a moment where he's been strained or tired or weary. He doesn't know that. It's not who he is. Infinite power. Uh, last week, there was a, we, we were hanging out with some friends and the Becks, Brian and Carrie Beck, their, their, their little baby Ellis uh, was there. And, and my older son, Winston, who's six, was trying to teach Ellis, who's a newborn baby, how to walk. He's like, come on, kid. Like, what's wrong with you? Just stand up. Like, here, I'll help you. Stand up. I'm like, oh, Winston, careful. Like, just stand up. All you got to do is just stand up. You put one foot for the other. This isn't hard, okay? This is not, this is not difficult. Winston doesn't understand that little baby Ellis's legs aren't developed yet. He can't stand. He can barely crawl, let alone walk. He can't do it. It's not, it's not within his power. You and I are like little baby Ellis. So small, so fragile, so, so, so tiny, so powerless. If you were to give little baby Ellis a feather and ask him to lift it, of course he could lift that. But it is harder for him to lift a feather than it is for the God of all things to create the universe. It takes more effort for you to lift a feather than it does for the God of infinite power to create all things. Job says this in Job 42, too. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. There is nothing outside the realms of what our God can do. He can do anything he wants to do. He has infinite power and there's no one that can stop him. There's nobody that, that rivals him. There's nobody that compares to him. There's, there's no one. There's nothing. He has infinite power, and no one can thwart what he wants to do, his purpose. And what I want you to see this morning, church, is that this is who Jesus is. The person being described in Isaiah 9, 6, the El Gabor, the mighty warrior God, is Jesus Christ. That's who he is. He is our mighty God. Jesus is not God shrunk down. He's not God miniaturized. He is not a lesser version of God. He is not a different version of God. He's not pint-sized. He's not miniature. He's not this, this small thing that, that, that you've been given so that you can understand, right? My, my wife, Desiree, she loves miniature things, right? I don't know if you've ever gone to, to REI. Um, they have like the little miniature tents, 
okay? So you can see what the tent looks like without putting the whole tent in. She's like, I want that. I'm like, why do you want that? She's like, I don't know. It's just so cute. I want that, right? You go to Lowe's. They have miniature bathtubs, right? So they don't have the 100 big bathtubs. They have these mini- it's like, I want that. It's like, you couldn't fit a little dog in that. Why do you want that? I don't know. There's something in me that wants that. We're attracted to like these miniature things because we can like understand, we can see better what it's going to look like without enduring the whole thing, right? That's not who Jesus is. It's not who he is. He is the mighty God. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is fully God. Colossians 1, 9, For in him, what? How much? All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not some of it. Not a miniature version of it. The fullness of God. All the fullness of God dwells in the person of Christ. Hebrews 1, 2 through 3. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, when I was growing up, my, my dad, my dad was a crime scene expert. He was a forensics, forensic pathologist. That's what he did for a living. He was the head of crime scene in the state of Illinois. Um, he solved murders, crazy stories, crazy, crazy things. Um, and when I was a little boy, I, I, little boys play with their dad's stuff, right? I don't know what your dad did, but um, if your dad drove a truck, you liked playing in the cab of that truck. If your dad came home with a briefcase, you liked to open up that briefcase and listen to those things click. I don't know what you did, but you played with your dad's stuff. That's what you do when you're a little boy. I, when I was a little kid, I played with fingerprint brushes. I learned how to lift a fingerprint when I was in kindergarten, man. Uh, every, every doorknob in our house was dusted for fingerprints regularly. I learned all about them. Loops and double loops and whirls and arches. I know how to read a fingerprint. I don't really, listen, I learned something about kindergarten. And there are no two fingerprints in this world that are the same. Identical twins are not identical. They have different imprints. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is this. Jesus and God are identical. He is the exact imprint of his nature. They're the same, as theologians would say, they are the same substance. There is no difference. He is the exact imprint. John 1, 2 through 3, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Does that sound pint size? Does it sound small? No, he is the mighty God, the El Gabor. Now, if Jesus is fully God, if, he, if, the, if in him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, if he is the exact imprint of his nature, you expect him to do God-like things. 
more than human things, things that you and I can't do. In the Gospels, we find recorded 39 miracles, 39 miracles that are written down, recorded. We know there are more than that, but there's 39 that are recorded. And even within those 39 that are recorded, some of those miracles are things like he healed many who were sick, or or he cast out many demons. He fed 5,000. Those are recorded as one miracle. It's one miracle. Many people, one miracle. Many demons, one miracle. 5,000 people, one miracle, right? We record these as one thing. And so constantly we are seeing this unbelievable, infinite might of God on display. And there's a reason why in first century Israel, 2,000 years ago, everything blew up. It's not because they had Twitter. It's not because they had Facebook. It's not because they had this mass media. No, because people were telling people everywhere that there was somebody who could heal them or heal their relatives. And people were coming from all over with their sick and their lame, people that they love, trying to get to Jesus. There's a story where people are pressing in because they want to get so close to him. And a woman reaches out and just touches the fringes of his garment. And she is cured of an incurable disease that she has had for years. And Jesus says, who touched me? Because the El Gabor, the mighty God, knew that power had gone out from him. Might had gone out from him. He is our mighty God. If he is our mighty God, you'd expect him to say he is God. Not just do God things, but to actually say he's God. If you remember um, in the Old Testament, there's a famous story, even for those of you who maybe didn't grow up going to church, you probably know the story, uh, where Moses is called by God in the burning bush to go to Egypt Right? And, and Moses is talking to this burning bush, which would have been pretty trippy. Uh, and he says, okay, who, when they ask me who sent me, who do I say sent me? And the God of all things says, I am. I am a sent you. That's what you tell them. Meaning that I am the uncreated one. The one who has always been and will always be. The uncreated one. I am. I am. In the Gospels, in John 8, there's a story where Jesus is being grilled by the religious leaders at the time. And he says this, he says, Your father Abraham, not Moses, but Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What's going on? What's happening? Here's what's happening, right? God made a promise to Abraham. And that promise was that from him, from his line, from him would come one who would bless all the nations of the earth. And what Jesus says is that Abraham saw this day and he rejoiced. And he saw the day of Jesus and he rejoiced. He saw Jesus and he rejoiced. And the the people that are standing there saying, wait, kid, you're not even 50 years old. How did you see Abraham? How do you see somebody from a thousand years ago when when you are not even 50 years old? What's wrong with you? Like they're being, it's a sarcastic question, right? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, in our modern context, we say, well, he didn't say he was God. He just said, I am. But what did they do next? The religious leaders picked up rocks 
to kill him, to stone him. You see, they knew exactly what he said. They knew exactly what he was claiming. They knew exactly what was going on. And they were going to kill him for it. Here's another one from John 10. A couple chapters later, Jesus says famously, you probably know the line, that I and the Father are one. We are the same. We're the same substance. We're the exact imprint. We're the same. But look what happens next. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Which of the 39 miracles are you going to kill me for? Like, is it so unbelievable that I said the Father and I are one? Like, have you not been around? Have you not seen what's been going on? Have you not seen the God-like things? Which one of those are you going to kill me for? Then they said this. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. They knew exactly what was going on. They knew exactly what he was saying and what he was doing, and they were going to kill him for, him, for it. And as we approach Christmas, we need to keep those two things in mind. Jesus, being a man, claimed to be God. Not only did Jesus, whose name is mighty God, display the might of God by doing things that only God can do, but he claimed to be that same mighty God. And oh, how we need a mighty God so that we also may conquer. You see, friends, whether you realize it or not, your eternity exists on your ability to conquer. You, you may have not been told that. You may have not been taught that. But I'm not telling you that. Jesus says that. Jesus says it in, Re, in Revelation 3. Revelation 3.20, Jesus said this. He says, there's a famous line. You probably, you probably memorized this. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We like that verse. Look at the next one, though. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered, I sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our eternity is dependent on conquering. And what is it that we must conquer? What is it that we must conquer to sit with Jesus on the throne of heaven? We must conquer our sin. And we must conquer death. And last time I checked, we are not good at those things. Last time I checked, every single one of us in this room will die. I will die and you will die. For some of us, it'll be soon. For some of us, we may have years left. But either way, we face the same end. No one in here is going to conquer that. And last time I checked, we were not very good at conquering our sin either. I've been a pastor for a long time. And I've met so many people who have the same sin for years and years and years and years and years. And their whole life is this tape on repeat of them saying, I'm never going to do that anymore. I'm going to stop. I promise I'm going to be a better husband. I promise I'm going to do better with my money. I promise I'm going to be a better dad. I promise I'm going to be faithful. I promise I'm not going to get angry anymore. I promise I'm not going to stress out anymore. 
And they work and they work and they work and they work and they, they read the right books and they try all the right things and they, and they, they try so hard. And their whole life is a cycle of trying and trying and trying and trying and failing and failing and failing and failing and failing and failing. And there's seasons where things get better and there's seasons when it all falls apart. But none of them conquer. And if you're honest with yourself, you have not conquered your sin. Nor have I. And so what hope do you have? Earlier I said that Gabor is, in the Hebrew, it's often, when you look at it, finding in the Old Testament, it's referring to mighty warriors. David's mighty men. And David and Goliath, right? David and Goliath is a type of Christ. David is the type of Christ. When they step on the field of battle, the, the deal is that if Goliath wins this singular fight, all of the Philistines win. If David wins this singular, singular fight, all of the Israelites win. And this whole thing is designed by God to point us, to give you and I a picture of Christ, the one who would conquer. And when he conquers, he conquers for all who are on his side. When Christ conquers, he becomes the conqueror for all who are with him. We need a conqueror who will conquer. We must understand the manger and we must understand the cross. The manger, the mighty God of all things, steps into time. He becomes a baby boy, born in a manger. He puts on flesh. He puts on, listen to me, the mighty God puts on your mightlessness. I don't think that's a word, but we're going to roll with it, okay? The mighty God puts on your mightlessness. He puts on your little inability to walk. He puts on your brokenness. He puts on your shame. He puts on your sin. He puts on your, your inability to defeat death. He puts it all on. He becomes a human being. And, and, the, and Christmas reminds us of this, and we must be reminded of this. That the mighty God put on your mightlessness. He became beneath you. He became lower than you. As Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 4, he says this, Let each of you look not only not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And oh, how we need the cross. The manger without the cross is an incomplete picture. It's a failure to understand the gospel. Yes, God puts on flesh, but why does he put on flesh? Why does he put on your mightlessness? Why does he put on your weakness? Why does he put on your brokenness? Why does he put on your sin? Why does he put on your inability to conquer death? Why does he put on your inabilities? Why does he do this? Why would a mighty, infinite, mighty God put on your mightlessness? For the cross, the mighty God of all things put on your mightlessness so that he might pour out the full power of his wrath on himself. The only one who could endure the fury of the wrath of God 
was a God of infinite might. He became the Lamb. He became the Lamb. Only an infinitely mighty God could endure the wrath of a mighty God. It's the only one. You couldn't do it. And so in order to take the punishment and the penalty and that was due to you and me from God himself, God puts on flesh and dwells among us. God becomes low. He puts on flesh. He becomes a human to take the punishment that's due to humans. He puts on your mightlessness so that he might endure your punishment. And he conquered for you. The lamb conquered your sin. And the lamb conquered your death. Creation and all that we see around us is but a whisper of his might. But his resurrection, that's the roar of his thunder. When the God of all things conquered death and rose from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of majesty, he became the lamb. And here's how it's written in Revelation 5, 13. And I heard every creature in heaven, in earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is within them. I, you you got to do the extra work. I said it earlier. I heard every creature in heaven, every creature on earth, every creature under the earth, the worms, the, 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 tiny, the tiny little microorganisms, and all the creatures in the sea, in everything that's within them, not just their voices, all that they have declares this at one singular time. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Friends, the might of our mighty God has rescued you. And in order to do so, he had to put on your mightlessness. But lying there in that manger is infinite might. Do not go into Christmas missing that. That little boy in that manger holds infinite might. And with all of it, he loves you. He loves you. That's why he came. That's why he did what he did. And I want to challenge you this morning to not let another single day, not another hour, not another minute of your life go by without living before him as you should. On your knees, every moment of your life, giving all worth and all glory and all honor and all might to the Lamb. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we come before you this morning, and I pray, I pray, I pray that your Spirit has done and will continue to do a work in us, that we would not come before you as some man who said good things, that we would not come before you as simply one who loves us, 
in the fullness of infinite might, we would look upon the birth of Christ with awe and wonder and reference, and it would bring us to our knees. And there we would remain for all of our days. Would you do that work in us? Would you humble us before you? And would you stir our trust, stir our worship of you? I pray this things in your sweet and yet mighty name. Amen. Friends, why don't you stand?